just throwing more people into a broken system isn't going to fix the broken system. It's going to stay just as broken as it is. And so I always like to use the analogy of like treading water versus swimming. You have so many things you're trying to get done that you want to hire more people. But really, all you're doing is you're trying to tread water faster. Treading water faster will bring your head slightly up higher above the water level, but it's not actually going to change a whole lot of stuff. From Seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruyne, and you're in the CTO studio. Welcome to the CTO studio where my guest today is a man with a large vocabulary. I love him to bits. Dave Mango, principal and founder at Mango Tech, early leader in the DevOps movement from Salesforce, SolarWinds, and him and I riff on the value of iterative growth over revolutionary growth, and he took me on pretty early around my statements on Kaizen. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did and see you on the flip side. Dave Mango in the CTO studio. Hello. <laughs> I, <laughs> I had an uh, exchange with you about Mango Tech Disco Tech. Even now in that beautiful dark room of yours, I'm like, there has to be a disco ball up there somewhere. And then you were like, yes, I have a disco ball. So for reals, you have a disco ball? I have a disco ball in the garage. You know how when you turn open the garage door, the light goes on, there's a light bulb there? Yes, yes. I tied the electrical for the disco ball and for a light into that socket. So whenever the garage door opens or closes now, there's a little disco party that goes on. And I didn't tell my wife that I was going to do it. I did it in the afternoon one time and she came home with the kids at night and pulled into the dark garage and all of a sudden there was like this disco party going on in there. Love she loved it. What are the tunes? Is it the village people or what? Oh yeah, no, whatever's playing in the car. The disco ball is appropriate for everything, I think. I love it. Well, Dave, obviously a rich, illustrious history, Salesforce, SolarWinds, now the founder of Mango Tech, principal, really an early leader in the, in the DevOps world and super privileged and thankful to have you in our community. I thought we could spend some time in the CTO studio riffing on coming into organizations, PE firms, VCs, and helping them sort of find the benchmarks, the, the model companies that everyone seems to be comparing themselves to and the roles that our organizations play in holding up that mirror and saying, hey, this is what you're doing. There's no wrong, right, or neutral. It's just, let's not stay in this place. Let's just keep moving. One of the things I loved about the DevOps movement, like being involved early, was that idea of Kaizen or the stuff they took from Toyota Production Systems about continual improvement. It's something that I think is wonderful. I think that's deep ingrained in Agile. It's deep ingrained in a bunch of stuff. So yeah, that ability to help organizations get better, I, it's one of the joys of doing this kind of work. Is the idea of continuous improvement versus like radical improvement? I wonder sometimes if continuous improvement is a bit of a crutch where we say, oh, well, it's a little bit better than it was or 
as long as we keep improving, the Kaizen sort of lulling people to sleep, maybe that improvement only has to be in small little chunks versus Kai Kaka, which is like radical jumps and let's go and let's embrace and change and move and, and explore. What are you hearing when I say that? I don't know of any places where that radical stuff would work. So your greenfield brownfield thing, and I, I think the research has sort of shown that like it's interesting, like you know, I don't do very much work with startups at all. But you know, they say like the culture that you have even at your startup is going to set the culture for the rest of the time that the company is around. Like it doesn't even matter how big it gets or whatever, like that core you can look at the Amazon's, you know, API first culture and all these other things like it permeates for the rest of time. It's the whole evolution, not revolution thing. Like, I don't think revolution is very successful generally because the culture is the culture. And that doesn't mean that the culture can't evolve and change. But for me, like I'm advising companies that Everybody wants to know what tool to buy because uh, DevOps is about tools, which is absurd. But, and I'm like, pick whichever tool fits your company's culture the best. They're like, no, what about all these features and this? And I'm like, a tool that nobody uses is nowhere near as valuable as a tool that everybody uses. If you pick a tool that does most of the stuff that you want that fits in with your company culture, you're going to have the highest rate of adoption. You do the most stuff with something that has the highest rate of adoption, but like telling everyone, no, this is a brand new way of working that nobody's for here is familiar with. Just everybody like, no. Yeah. It's almost like you don't want the system to notice that it's changing. Otherwise, it's going to resist the change. Yeah. It's the uh, who wants to change. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, sorry. Who wants change? Everybody puts up their hand. Who wants to change? Everybody puts their hand down. I think I can see that. Continuous improvement is, I guess, a way for a, an established culture, established system to gradually change without rising up a force to resist the radical force of change. So I, I think I can get that. You're going to get resistance anyway. Always. In any agile transformation, you can expect to lose 10% of your employees because people are uncomfortable and they leave. That's going to happen regardless. But it's also important what you said is like in terms of within a system, like a closed system like that is maybe different than if I want to change the way that some industry works or whatever. I don't have to necessarily slowly change it. Like, you know, there can be shock waves that change things. Like, I think that's okay too. And I think my, and this is a great thing to ponder because. In the interest of growth and advancement and change, Kaizen almost feels, oh, okay, now I have to do it in a way that people don't resist. But maybe that's not the issue. The issue is, can I have a creative, innovative mindset, but understand that improvements over time and gradual is, affects the system in a better way? Well, I think... One of the big problems with sort of this idea of radical change or whatever is you don't have enough information to understand where you're jumping to and have a hypothesis or whatever. But like 
you're very unlikely to make that like gigantic leap and be successful in that gigantic leap because i mean this is again like a lesson from agile right is like you're continually adapting to the information that you have there's that law that says basically like no complex system has ever been designed as a complex system it inevitably gall's law gall's law thank you so like you know i think that's sort of his message there is like you can't jump to the end like you've got to evolve from a from a from a simple system yes yeah i like that and i find that gall's law helps me a lot as i talk and i coach organizations or we evaluate existing process it's like listen where is the simple component of this thing we're describing? Where is the simple A equals B or instead of describing all the exceptions and all the potential complexities, let's look at this process or the system and find where was the simple system that existed before this thing became hairy and unwielding. A complex system that works is invariably found to have evolved from a simple system that worked. A complex system designed from scratch never works and cannot be patched up to make it work. You have to start over with a working simple system. I think there's so much stuff that we talk about in, I don't even want to call it digital transformation because I hate that phrase, but like in all these transformations or whatever, and like you can find Gaul's law underneath so many things. And like one of them would be like Eric Reese's MVP stuff. Minimum viable product does not mean the simplest piece of garbage that I can throw out there that works. It sounds like that minimum viable product, but minimum viable product is like, what is the simplest thing that I can put out there, experiment that I can learn something from? That's what the minimum viable product is. And so like, I think that Gaul's law underlies even Eric Reese's minimum viable product. What is the smallest thing out there that I can learn something from? So that's how we evolve these complex systems or whatever is by starting with the simple stuff. And I think that's the argument for evolution, not revolution. Yeah, I think, as I mentioned, when I talk to people now, like you, I'm a student of systems theory. Whenever I go into, whether it's C-suite relationships, engineering unhappiness or convoluted process, prioritization of tasks, I actually find myself asking, where am I hearing complexity? And what did that complexity evolve from? Where is the simplest system that existed that unchecked and unbridled turned into this hot mess? Because sometimes it's not really a hot mess. It's just that the complexity has increased, but the people around it haven't necessarily adjusted or they still yearn for how it was. I remember when I could just merge and it would just go and be, and now I have to talk to five people. You know, it's like, no, well, actually you've got a more amazing product with tens of thousands of more customers. You've got a beautiful thing. So yes, we want to make sure that more checks and balances are in place, but it doesn't mean you have a bad system. It's just the people around there tend to not grow with that complexity yeah i call it systems archaeology i think it's fascinating because it's you're basically asking like how did the system come to be like this it's not a judgment right you're not like well why did you do this you were so stupid 
nobody makes decisions that they think are going to be bad decisions. They make decisions at the time with the information that they have. And like, just because we have more information now, like nobody knew what, how the world was going to turn out. That's nonsense. So it's great to go and ask those questions. And like, to your point, things are growing and changing over time. I, I was in a meeting once with a client and we were discussing like the things that were priorities fours and fives. And I was like, huh, what's the SLA on a priority four? And they go, a year. <laughs> and I was like, you guys are discussing something that you don't have to deliver for a year. And I was like, what's the percent chance that you believe that this stuff is still going to be relevant in a year? And they were like, all right, meeting over. <laughs> it was like, I'm sure at some point in time, like that made sense, but like people stuck with it. And I, I think that going back to what we started the conversation with, like the evolution thing, I, I think there's an important part of that is to be running these experiments continually I mean, this is the lesson of Toyota and, and where all that Kaizen stuff comes from. And it's in Steven Spears' High Velocity Edge book is like, we have to keep running these experiments. And so when I'm teaching teams that they have the ability to change, they say, well, well what if we did this? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. What if you did that? And they're like, huh. And I was like, but if you're going to agree to do that, put a meeting on the calendar in like, whatever, two months, however long you think that you want to run this experiment, well, you're going to come back and you're going to discuss, how did it go? Is this something we should keep doing? Is this something we should stop doing? Did, what did we learn? Maybe we want to adjust it or whatever. And like the thing that I mm. feel like a lot of people forget to do is do that part where they go back and reflect on the changes that they make. And John Willis, on his podcast likes to talk about Deming has the PDSA cycle, plan, do, study, yes. act. Yes. And he goes, in our industry, all we ever do is plan, do. Yes. We never do the study, act part. And it's like, that's why I want to teach these teams to put something on their calendar in two months. Cause I'm like, do the study part, do that, go back and reflect on it, figure out whether that this is good or bad and adjust do that as a cycle, and then you're continually improving. What a profound force to be inside of a team to as a coach or as a consultant to be able to say, hey, you have the ability to change. I talk to groups sometimes and I, I feel like that gets forgotten. Oh, no, we can't change. It's too many variables that have settled. I don't want to change. And I think the courage to change, but then I think the safety net that got removed along the way, which was, it has to be perfect, it has to work, and oh my goodness, what if this doesn't work? Then then that's the study act part, which is the, hey, there's a safety net. We're going to resolve, repair, review, retrospect on this in a month. And if it doesn't work, we're just going to throw it out and it's going to be another thing we can iterate on. And I find even from the smallest teams, to the largest companies, that is lost. You have a background that allows you to do that. So you were a CTO and you know how to do these things as organizations. I say to all these people all the time, which I'm sure you probably say almost the same thing, like, I'm giving you permission to do this. And they're like, what? I'm giving you permission to change. And they're like, what? It's something that's odd to hear it said so blatantly like that, but like, I'm giving you permission, like you can do this, but 
inherent in that permission, and this is sort of, I think, underlying what you were just saying, is I'm giving you permission to fail. In certain organizations, like people don't feel like they have that permission to fail. It's very hard to get better if you don't have permission to fail because of what you, all the things that you were just describing. And I was talking to somebody who was talking about how in their organization, the promotions would be like, if you had the least number of visible failures or something like that, you know, because they wanted to reward people for success. But like, what happens when you do that? It means that people hide failures. <laughs> like what? Covering up, covering up my tracks. Yeah, hiding failure is a horrible way to learn from them. And I think the starts with that leader, right? I mean, I know I've been in leadership. You also countless leadership situations where the desire to make the right choice to model perfection is high, a very, very high, because we aren't comfortable with egg on our face or. Man, he was so convinced this was going to do this. And then look at what happened. You know, it didn't work. And so that permission to fail really starts with the leader. And I think it's the inability to give ourselves permission to look like a doofus that really galvanizes that cultural desire to be perfect or not make mistakes. So that I love the explicit permission to say, listen, team. Let's all give ourselves permission that whatever we're going to try for the next six weeks might fail. This is why when you know, Google did the study of what, it, what were the characteristics of their highest performing teams, it wasn't the ones with the most PhDs. It wasn't the ones with the most experience. It was the ones with the most psychological safety, right? If you are in an environment that you are allowed to fail, you have to have that psychological safety because otherwise you're like, you know, I can't fail here. Like everyone's going to think I'm an idiot. One of the things that I've learned in ontological coaching is, is as we define relationships, we can also be intentional about what's going to make this relationship work for me and what isn't going to make this work for me. And we actually be intentional about sharing that with each other. One of the things that has been a profound tool for me is to be able to say, hey, if we screw up, how do we clean up? How do we clean up our relationship or how do we clean up a conversation? This is where we could have a huge impact on how we are exchanging with our dev teams and our leaders. It's almost like we do the PD part, but not the SA. It's like, listen, we do relationship, we work, we do things, we say things to each other, we agree, we disagree. But sometimes something gets said that will hurt me or it will alienate me or it will cause me to want to isolate myself because I'm now uncertain. And so defining, well, listen, when I feel this way, I will tend to withdraw from you and I, you won't hear from me. When I do that, I give you full permission to just kind of, if I don't respond to that first email, just know that maybe I'm hurt. So you have my full permission to write the second email and say, dude, or I might not be willing to converse with you in Slack. So why don't you just call me, just text me and call me and then we can clean things up. But I think so often, we all think we're experts in how to manage relationships, but then when things fall apart, we don't have the agreements for how to fix the relationship that maybe just needs like a quick little correction and then everything's back to normal. But without that correction, the next time and the next time, the relationships keep degrading. And that's where I think psychological safety is out the door because now it's like, well, every time I bring up an issue, 
my boss will tend to defer to our senior engineer and she always answers my questions. And then you're like, okay, well, I shouldn't be asking questions anymore. Or, or why am I being discriminated against? And then all those big thoughts and scrutiny happens. If only we just had a, hey, this is how we fix relationships when things go weird. Well, then you can also have in that situation, you would have a sit where only certain people on the team are allowed to fail. And that's certainly not the best way to move forward. I think it was Lara Hogan had a really great blog post that was called something to the effect of like questions that I'll ask you during our first one-on-one because Lara writes a lot about management. One of the questions was, what do you look like when you're stressed? How can I tell? That's a lot of what you're talking about is like being able to understand what, you know, what they look like so that you can help them. And I think on teams, I've been working on distributed teams on and off for 20 something years. And like, we always talk about how you have to fly people in to spend time with each other once in a while. It doesn't have to be all the time, but you have to be able to break bread together with somebody because that's the only way you really get to know them as a person. So that when you do recognize they're struggling or something, you can recognize that at a human level, even if it's remote. I know you so much better because I spent time in person with you better than I would have otherwise. And that's a big part of like the team performance. I think your first words to me was like, how do I even know that you are a good CTO? For all I know, you might be pathetic and we're all just delusional by hanging out with you. I think those were your exact words. I don't remember that in the same way that you remember that for sure. On a personal note, what I will give you kudos for, I mean, I think there was a, an exchange we had where I had done something and you, you, know, you came to me, you were like, hey, I saw you do this. I just want you to know I don't operate like that. So provide me with some clarity. You gave me an opportunity to tell you how I feel. Then you said, well, I generally don't operate like this. And then I said, well, cool. This is my intention. This is what I want you to assume about me. And, you know, we had sort of a, I would say, a quick back and forth. But what could have been a gradual falling away from the relationship turned into you instigating a clarification on stuff, gave me an opportunity to talk and speak, gave you an opportunity to hear me, me hear you. And honestly, since then, I've just felt like our relationship sort of upgraded. And then the next thing that happened, now we can assume the best about each other because we had the other thing that we worked through. And I think we were able to navigate some other exchanges happening. And so I just think that that stuff requires so much positive will, willingness to make an effort. Empathy is such an overused phrase, but boy, when empathy works, it really works and it saves relationships. Yeah, I don't remember me doing that quite as cleanly as you remember it. I think I went in a little too hot, but I talk about empathy a lot, like not as much anymore, but you know, I have given a talk called The Cognitive Neuroscience of Empathy. You're a DevOps natural. I've given it all over the world, as a matter of fact. One of the things I talk about in there is there's the modern models of empathy are that there's three axes to it. One is that thing that everybody talks about, which is you feel what somebody else feels, which is fine. That's only one of the three. There's another one called pro-social concern, which is like 
having the ability to help somebody else when you see them in distress. And the third one is mentalizing. And mentalizing is understanding that the other person has a mind, like a brain, just like you do and thinks about stuff. And so I think when you're using that word empathy, the fact that you and I were able to come together and come to a common understanding is because I know now that you're thinking deeply about this stuff, just like I am. So I'm recognizing a mind on the other side of the conversation, which we don't necessarily do where we're just walking down the street. That's some very strong parts of empathy. And I think that's what allows people who understand each other, which is probably mentalizing, to be able to get through conflicts and things like that. I love that idea of mentalizing. I know you have kids and I have kids. And one fun application of what you just said was, have you ever seen your child, your young child, just feel so incredibly sad about something that they would start weeping and weeping and weeping? And the thing that they are sad about is the brother taking the toy away from them or the idea that they have to eat their broccoli, you know? And what I think to myself is that little brain has computed the outcomes and has found sadness and has therefore activated the tear ducts and the intense emotional response. And I'm like, who am I to tell that little brain that, no, override all of those emotions, you are going to eat your broccoli when that fear response is so bad that it causes tears and weeping. Now, I'm not discarding the fact that that can be useful in manipulation, so I'm not that naive. But it has been an incredible tool for me as a parent, and I, I think what you put words to there with mentalizing is understanding that that brain has independently, cognitively come to its own neural network conclusions that I, I need to respect. They calculated A equals B, and then it jumps to F, and then, holy moly, it goes all the way to Z. Whereas I might have 20 more steps in there or vice versa. And so I love that idea of that component of empathy because I think that's really what empathy is. Well, and I think on our teams and stuff that we can use that, like I've definitely been in my career at times been talked to about, you know, if somebody said something in the meeting about some suggestion and you just dismissed it, that's not okay. I'm trying to learn from every one of those situations, but like that is probably me not realizing that that person offering that suggestion wasn't just some automaton that like was spouting stuff out of their mouth. Like that was a thinking, creative human being who spent time coming up with that. And to dismiss it out of hand is probably not a, you know appropriate and certainly not great for team performance or team cohesion or psychological safety either. Yeah, that's a tricky situation, right? Because then you also have people who are just being assholes. Yeah, don't hire assholes, right? I mean, do you see that with the companies that you're going into to assess and help with? Like, this is something I get asked. So I want to know if you get asked this. They're like, who should I get rid of? Or do I have too many people or whatever? And I'm like, I literally just showed up here. There's no way I could answer that question. Let's put that whole conversation aside for uh, some time in the future. It's a tough one because I find my brain going towards if you're wanting to fire someone, there's something wrong with you. And this is just a natural 
problem I have. Immediately, I'm like, no, well, what are you doing wrong? How are you not showing up as a leader? How did you create this situation? How is the team tolerating this behavior? So for me, it's a, how do we fix you and the team? Sometimes they just have to go. They just have to be let go. And so I think just like with you, it's a tough decision, I think, for an outsider to make. And I think by the very nature of that question, I don't like that you're putting it on me as someone who absolutely cannot know everything you know. I'm not immersed in your culture. You're just cheap shot trying to get me to validate something that you're maybe too afraid to put yourself behind. So these are my sort of white waters of my thoughts and my knee-jerk reaction. So then I have to go into a whole, well, how do I manage myself as a neutral third party in answering this question? And so I find that curiosity, of course, is always the solution to these things. What would you like to do? Or if all things were equal, what do you see in the next year or two? And then you just, you just kind of excavate what is actually going on for them. You know, I like Deming, and he had that quote that said something to the effect of like, when anything needs to be fixed or improved, 94% is the responsibility of management, and, you know, 6% is special, basically, he said. But like, that's sort of what you're talking about is like, well, if you want to fire this person, like, it's probably the responsibility of management why they're not performing. They could be in a situation, you know, like you said, maybe they have to leave, but like, they have to leave for a situation that's a better fit for them, not Absolutely. like because, you know, whatever. It's like this is how the system is designed and they're not working within the system. But the other thing I see is and this one is are fun for me because you've read Crucial Conversations, I'm sure. And like one of the things they talk about is when you're having a disagreement with somebody, you create a narrative about why that person is behaving the way that they are. And if their behavior fits the narrative, then your theory is probably correct because regardless of whether it's true or not, but like your brain says, well, they're fitting my narrative, therefore it must be true. But more often than not, it's not true. Yeah. It's so like I get the situations where like the developers tell me that the operations people are lazy and don't want to do any work and invent work just so that they have something to do. And then the operators tell me that the developers don't understand anything and they want this or whatever. And like, to me, it's, I try not to laugh while I'm hearing it. And I just, you know, write stuff down in my notebook, but it's obvious that these two groups don't understand each other and they're creating narratives about the other person that explain the behavior. And because they see it over and over, then the narrative must be correct. And I go, I can guarantee you beyond a shadow of a doubt, that those people are not making up work, whatever, because I've talked to them and those people aren't idiots. And I, you know, have to work to bridge that, but part of the system, but that's also part of like, how do you get into these situations where someone's like, the problem is obviously here. And you're like, well, okay. So many things tie back to the permission to fail, the failure to lead. Because when I get someone explaining to me this untenable situation, the first thing I see is, well, how are you not leading? What is your own issue that is preventing you to show up in your full being in leading the situation? So I was coaching a company recently, and a fairly young company, and they were telling us how they wanted to start implementing best practice. And so their star engineer got offended and basically quit. 
and their narrative was well he didn't want to change he's a hacker the more i listened to them the more i said i said to them at one point you know what that person left like this person saw what was happening made certain conclusions and left and i don't think that they were terrible i don't think that that makes them wrong i think it depends a lot on how you were leading the situation and what you were assigning right and wrong to and thought never crossed their mind that it was a function of leadership versus they were just like hey a bad apple left the company and i don't care if it was a bad apple i tell people often i don't care if your people are quitting or if you're firing people i care about how are you showing up and how are you growing and finding your breakthroughs in these situations? And so I think with leadership, well, that's what I see is this intense drive to be perfect. And if there's any sort of change in outcome, then that's a reflection on something that has to be fixed very quickly. And then there's this, it's not this peaceful, like, you know what, we're all going to screw up and let's just work through. Every day provides us with the new data and let's adjust accordingly. So. On Mango Tech, I know both of us are in the situation where we come into companies who bring us in for various reasons. Something we've started doing recently, as I told you, is we do what we call a levels assessment to see where you are and where you need to be in its most basic form. And really what we found is it helps CTOs in this deluge of things they have to do and nothing being done and the to-do list growing every week, we help them sort of shine the light on, okay, well, there's this cluster of things that you should probably focus on next. So in everything that has to be done, why don't we just focus on this next thing? And, so, and more often than not, it's a non-intuitive next thing. Like, you know, we have to work on hiring people, hiring people. And I'm like, okay, well, let's take a look at your infrastructure like how are you managing your software delivery and then they're like no, no no i need you to tell me how to increase my hiring funnel so i can get more people great we're gonna get there but the non-intuitive thing is do you have any of your values documented do you have anything that these new hires can look at to get any idea on how you work I'm like no, no 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 we'll just onboard them and we'll fix it so in my assessments i am seeing this type of behavior and i'm sure why don't you speak a little bit to the type of assessments you're doing? And I think you're working with larger enterprise. What assessments are you doing? And what are your, some stories that you're seeing as organizations respond to these assessments? So I'll put the assessment aside because I'm doing service delivery assessments, but I have seen exactly what you're talking about with this thing about how I have to hire more people. And when we start digging into it, it's like, well, what is hiring more people going to do for you? There's this thing that managers have where like, if they're not getting enough work done, the lever they pull is I want to hire more people. And I'm like, let's look at the work. And they're like, what? <laughs> like, no, instead of just throwing more people at it, let's actually look at the work. In some respects, like, just throwing more people into a broken system isn't going to fix the broken system. It's going to stay just as broken as it is. And so I always like to use the analogy of like treading water versus swimming. You have so many things you're trying to get done that you want to hire more people. But really, all you're doing is you're trying to tread water faster. Treading water faster will bring your head slightly up higher above the water level, but it's not actually going to change a whole lot of stuff. And so 
we wound up looking at like, what are you working on? What there's all kinds of things that we know, like talked about in the beginning, like how I've been in the DevOps movement. We know like self-service is way better than tickets and waiting and all the other stuff. How much of the work that you're doing can we make self-service? I used to work with a client that said self-service, there's no service like no service or something like that, which is basically like people should be able to solve their own problems and do self-service. And I'm like, if you were to change the way that you work so that you're building systems that people can work within, then you don't need more people. But the solution is always like, oh, the lever I got to pull is hire more people. And so we look a lot, or I look a lot, basically like the value stream. How is the work flowing through the system and where can we make improvements? That's not to say that hiring people isn't a solution to problems, but the first thing that we want to do is, you and I talked about it early in the conversation, is that the idea of improvement of daily work and see what we can improve so that we can get more work out of the same number of people. You and I work with VC and PE backed companies to have a lot better use of the investor's money to get more work out of the same people than, hey, let's just hire more people and throw more people into the system. Yeah, but then we also said that VCs in an innovation cycle are maybe funding waste because out of waste comes more crazy ideas or maybe more miracles. I don't think that any VC wants to dump money in the garbage. I think that they accept a certain amount of waste in the system because that is what's required in order to get to the place that they want to get to. Innovation is basically doing a bunch of experiments on things that we already know, seeing like what the outcomes are of each of those experiments. And like, you can't guarantee anything out of that. Exploration, basically, that's where innovation is. And when I was at Salesforce, they funded the innovation department or the innovation lab or whatever the heck they called it. And I was just laughing. I was like, how about instead of the innovation lab, the entire company is turned into an innovation engine instead of one small little area? It doesn't make any sense. Like, what are you guys Funding doing? innovation. My friend Brant Cooper has got a lovely distinction he makes around invention versus innovation. Most of our tech companies out there, very few of them are actually inventing new things. Most of us out there are combining ideas, like you said, experimenting with usefulness. Well, what if I take this thing from the bakery industry and I combine it with bicycles? Oh, wow, I can create something in the gig economy. Pies within 10 minutes delivered by bicycle. Anyways, that is innovative. I mean, there might be an innovative app they write that can time the delivery of the bake, the pie with, you know, so there is innovation in there, but you didn't necessarily invent something that drives humanity forward. Well, it's not even that. It's that, you know, let's say you came up with two new things last year, and then I go to you and I say, Etienne, you did great last year. You had two new innovations. I would like for you to get at least six, if not nine, innovations this year. If you don't get seven innovations this year, you're fired can't promise that it's impossible like this is basically the sophomore album release problem that most bands have <laughs> you did the first one with your pocket money this next one we're going to fund and we want you to create the same genius of course i can guarantee that no problem this doesn't make any sense and so yeah going back to what we were saying about getting more work out of the same thing deming said and out of the crisis he said i remind the reader that the improvements took place 
with the same people and no new equipment. Yes, we saw that en masse in the last three years. Departments getting crushed and then more work coming out of those departments. Saw that everywhere. Because it required them to look at what they're doing, right? You're home now, you have to examine the way that work flows. And we've learned, or people understand, or whatever you want to call it, that a in-office team versus, let's say, a distributed team, those are actually fairly well understood how those things kind of work. It's the hybrid teams where some are in the office and some are not, because you have to be really intentional about what you're doing. You have to really say, like, this is how we're going to do it. You can't just let it fly because you're sort of straddling these two things. And I think that's to your point of like how these teams have become so productive is they discovered that they had to be intentional about the way that they work. And all these productivity gains came out of being intentional. And then forcing them to basically invent new ways of doing things. I had a a great conversation with someone once who said it's not going remote isn't just trying to take tools, simulate being in the office and doing that. It's really taking a step back and looking at your culture, looking at the processes and inventing a new way of being with each other that serves the company vision. And, and I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, everyone that tells me that they're exhausted from being on Zoom calls all day. Why are you on Zoom calls all day? <laughs> I wasn't in 12 meetings every day for five days a week. And somehow that's become okay. Back to back, you know, I mean, I had to consciously say in my assistant, I'm like, listen, golden ratio. For every hour meeting I have, I want 30 minutes plus downtime. If it's a 15-minute meeting, I want seven minutes downtime. And boy, that has been delicious. High-performing engineering teams work asynchronously when they're distributed. It's not like, well, we sat next to each other in the office every day, so now we're going to get on, everyone on at 8 o'clock on the Zoom call, and we're all going to sit next. High-performing teams don't do that. They work asynchronously. It's like the recurring meeting. It was a great idea in the beginning of the year. And then halfway through the year, it's like, well, we need a topic for our Monday morning meeting. I'm like, no, that means we don't need a meeting. And that's what you and I were talking about before, about like we run the experiment and we decide whether or not this is something we need to keep doing. If every Monday we're like, we still don't have a speaker, then maybe we should look at that and make it, study it and decide, do we want to keep doing this or is there a reason that we're not, we don't have a speaker? Like, what can we yeah, change about that now? system? But we can do it based on the information that we have. I was working at a company with a company that acquired another company. And one of the engineers, his name was George, told me, you know what? We used to run Linux for our operating system on the server farm. And we discovered that Windows is just much better for a server operating system. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Why, why would you say that? And he's like, well, we got this vice president that came in who had been at Microsoft and he had us rebuild the entire platform on Windows that we had been running on Linux. And I said, huh. And did you make the same mistakes that you had made when you built the Linux stuff? He's like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, the things that you hated about the Linux platform that really bothered you, did you repeat those things when you built the Windows one? He's like, no, of course not. Like, so you took the lessons that you had learned from before 
and you made something that was better that worked better for you the second time around. But then you attribute it to Windows versus Linux. It's like, no, it's got nothing to do with it. I love that. That's such a great example. Right. And I think that's what you were getting at when you were talking about people reimagined what they were doing, you know, with remote work now that they have to be out of the office. It's like, let's take the things that we had learned and apply those in the next thing so that it's better. There you have it. Dave, I'm so thankful. I love talking to you. Thank you for jumping on with me. I feel like we can cover any topics we want. So really appreciate that. Always a pleasure. I'll see you soon.